Testing, testing. There we go. Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, 847, thank you. We're going to be looking at chapter 19. 19 of the law of God. Chapter 19 of the law of God. <laughs> yeah. Roman numerals are hard, Dave. Thank you for figuring that out for us. <clears throat> so chapter 19... Uh, of the law of God. Today, uh, obviously, we are still in our study of uh, Robertson. Um, either this mic is really hot or I'm standing in the wrong spot. I'm getting my own echo. <clears throat> so, uh, we're still in our study of Robertson, and today we are on chapter 10, dealing with uh, the Moses, uh, the covenant with Moses, Mosaic covenant. Um, so I'm going to open in prayer a few preliminaries, and then we're going to get started by looking at the Westminster Confession today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We pray that we, like the psalmist, would, uh, would love your law. Pray that you would hide your law in our heart, that your word, uh, as it is true and pure and clean, would lead us. Uh, we pray that you would give us hearts to rejoice in the revelation that you have given of your character. Uh, pray that you would help us to discern uh, as believers with the law written on our heart, what do we have to do with the law of Moses? Help us to understand that. Help us to grow in a knowledge of you. Help us to grow uh, in a love for you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, um, so we're in, in chapter 10, which if you noticed, if you read it, is thus far the longest of the chapters in the book. There is a lot here. It's even longer by a few pages than that big uh, chapter four that, um, or chapter three that Scott Owens covered a while ago on the unity of the covenants. There is a lot here, and the outline that I've given you does not actually cover everything. I think there actually is uh, uh, the bulk of the argument uh, really happens pages 175 to the end of the chapter. And so I would like to look at that together, but the big question about the uh, Mosaic Covenant uh, that Robertson is dealing with uh, essentially is, what does the law of Moses have to do with New Testament believers? If the law is written on our hearts, what should we think about it? How should we interact with it? And he has quite a few pretty big, long arguments. Some of these sections may be a little longer than they should have been, uh, could have communicated some of these things more quickly. He gets into the weeds a little bit, and so I want to help you cut through all those weeds, and the way we're going to do that is by first looking at the Westminster Confession. Uh, and so once we look at this, we're, instead of looking at, uh, like we have the last few weeks, taking a few scripture passages and giving some comment and, and situating ourselves that way, we're going to situate ourselves through the Westminster Confession because uh, it really does deal with the issues uh, that Robertson is raising, namely, what do New Testament believers have to do with the Old Testament law? And so, uh, if you've got it before you, we're just going to read through these sections, seven of them, I believe, uh, if I'm correct, uh, seven sections in this chapter uh, so that we can see uh, what is the Reformed understanding of the law, and that will help us to understand what Robertson is giving us. So, the first section reads this way. It says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal 
entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. He promised life upon the fulfilling, and he threatened death upon the breach of it, and he endued him with the power and the ability to keep it. So when we think of law in Scripture, and this is something that, uh, that Robertson brings out in his argument, law doesn't come on the scene for the very first time at Sinai. It's not something that God uh, invents in Exodus chapter 20, and then up until this point there was no law. The, the, the uh, confession is showing us there was a law, there has always been a law, and God revealed it in different stages. He revealed it first through the covenant of works to Adam in the garden. Uh, and so this first section identifies God's covenant with Adam as a law covenant. And there's a principle of law, and it says that principle is personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Now, as a covenant of grace, or I'm sorry, a covenant of works, we've already seen this with Adam, uh, this principle could have led uh, to life for himself and for his posterity. And for Adam, before the fall into sin, he actually had the ability to keep this law. Uh, he was, uh, as we say in, in theological terms, passe non peccari. It was possible for him not to fall into sin. He could have actually kept this uh, by the, the grace that the Lord had given to him. And, uh, and we can see here Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, tells us that when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul there is talking about Gentiles who know nothing about the Ten Commandments. They've never read the law of Moses, and yet the imprint of God's image, uh, his moral character, is upon our being. Uh, and he says they are a law unto themselves. So by the way that God has created us, by the way he has revealed himself, both through the covenant of works, particularly to Adam, but also through the rest of creation, we understand that there is this law and there is this principle of obedience. So that's the first section. Any, any questions on that first section before we move on? All right. Uh, the second section, uh, for those just joining us, we are in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, in the back of our Trinity hymnal, uh, section 2. It says, This law, after his fall, that is, after Adam's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness. As such, it was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables. The first four commandments containing our duty toward God, and the other six our duty to man. Now, the first section uh, told us that there always has been law, and the second section tells us that the law that showed up at Sinai is the same law that always has been. God is not inventing new things. Uh, he's not coming up with, uh, with different requirements for his people. But he is, for the first time, making these things explicit in a way that they have not been explicit before. So, uh, how do we know that this is the same law that showed up before? Well, we know uh, because the law is based on the character of God, which does not change. We know also that this is the same law that showed up before because the consequence of the law has been persistent from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Here's how R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.14 makes the point that the law was first given to Adam and Eve in the garden by saying that death ruled from Adam to Moses. Death implies the presence of law, 
Because without the law, there is no sin. Without sin, there is no death. Since death reigned from Adam to Moses, we can infer, as the apostle did, that God's law must have been in force from Adam to Moses. Uh, so, uh, this again is a, a part of the argument that Robertson is making. Uh, not just that, uh, that there always has been law, but it's been the same law, revealed in different ways, and it's not until we get to Sinai that God gives a full summation of his moral, moral character in the Ten Commandments. Although it's the same character, uh, it's the same requirement, uh, and, uh, and it also shows us uh, the two tables of the law. So here's a, another way that we summarize the law in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, the summary is to love God and to love our neighbor. This is binding on all people at all times. Uh, the New Testament confirms this and enforces this. Uh, Paul says in Romans that love is the keeping of the law. All the apostles, all the prophets hang on this command that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, we see this uh, also in, uh, in Leviticus 19, uh, which is in the context of loving neighbor and serving neighbor. Uh, it says, you shall be holy as I am holy. So what is the standard of our moral righteousness and, and moral obedience to the Lord? It's the standard of his character. Jesus says the same thing. He says, you therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, incidentally, that shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in the section on dealing with your neighbor. It's almost as though Jesus is giving his exegetical thoughts on Leviticus 19. He's talking about loving neighbor. He's talking about uh, being kind to those who are around you. And then he ties it back, just as the Lord does in Leviticus 19, uh, to the character of God, uh, which is the basis for our, uh, our moral duty. So, uh, in section three, any questions on section two before we move on? Good. We'll get through this really quickly. Um, in section three, that points out that that first law was the moral law. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, suffering, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So the third section touches on uh, the distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law. Now there is some overlap there, as it even says. It, it teaches some moral duties. So when you read uh, what we typically think of as the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, things about how you plant your fields, what kind of uh, clothes you wear, the things that you should eat, uh, the way that you should interact in, in the land the Lord your God is giving you. There are moral, moral duties uh, commanded and required, and we see those principles, but the vast majority of that stuff is meant to point forward to Jesus. So when Jesus comes, when the fullness comes, all of these partial things fade away. Uh, all of these, uh, these Old Testament ceremonial laws are abrogated, it says, under the New Testament. And you could look at, at Hebrews uh, and at Colossians and, and several other places where you could see that. In Colossians, it, it talks about the ordinances, uh, and these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so there is this distinction we need to make as we talk about, well, uh, you know, the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, the New Testament tells us we're not under the law, but we're under Christ. Well, what does that mean? That's an argument that, that Robertson uh, touches on. Well, uh, it doesn't mean the whole Pentateuch. 
That doesn't mean the, new, uh, the Ten Commandments. So we need to make distinctions when we look at the Old Testament. We say, what is the Mosaic Law? Well, it comes in in different stages, different categories. There's moral, there's ceremonial. And then the next section, for, uh, section four, <coughs> there is uh, political law, judicial law. Section four, to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. So again, for those joining us, we are in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, section 4. We're just walking through the, the reform doctrine uh, of the law of God as we're looking here. And so now the fourth section uh, of the confession gives us another category of law, another bucket to put these things in. Uh, and, and these were judicial laws. This was the recognition that the people of Israel was set up as a theocracy. Uh, they weren't just a family, as, uh, as Robertson says, but they became a nation under the law. And these laws were given to them to tell them how to order their nation. And these laws that were given to order their nation are no longer binding on us. That's why we do not stone disobedient children, thankfully. Uh, that's why we do not put homosexuals to death. Now, there are, again, some... Uh, moral duties required here, and so uh, disobedience to parents and homosexuality continue to be sin. Even as we look in the New Testament, we continue to have this duty for, uh, for obedience. So there's a moral requirement hidden in there or, and, and tucked away, but these things pass away. Um, interesting discussion there. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that the laws regarding muzzling oxen were written for the sake of readers who were to come so that they should plow in hope. God gave the law for man, not for the sake of oxen. Do you remember that passage? Uh, you know, it talks about uh, the law, and he says, does God, does God care about oxen? Did he write this for the oxen, that you shouldn't uh, muzzle them when they're, they're treading out the grain? No, but it was for us, uh, so that we should plow in hope. So he's pointing to a judicial law. How should you treat your animals? What should you do uh, in the way that you're, you're interacting in the land? And he says there's something to, to be gleaned here. So there's something to learn, uh, but those judicial laws are no longer in effect for us. Questions on these, uh, this breakdown of the law so far? Jay. Good. Good. Thank you. But do you plow in hope? That's the question. Right? Do you look forward to the harvest that the Lord will give? That's what Paul is saying. Right? There's, there's something to be learned. It has a lasting significance. We don't take all of the Old Testament and say, well, we have nothing to do with that anymore, right? It, it doesn't mean anything to us. No, it means a lot to us, although, yes, we, we don't have to muzzle our ox. You can have a tiny garden plot, and you can put, Jay, your strawberries right next to your gooseberries, and that's okay. Uh, yeah, you can, you can do that. All right, section five. Uh, the moral law doth forever bind all. Hold on a minute there. This is the argument that Robertson is getting to. Uh, that sometimes when people uh, read the New Testament and says we're no longer under the law but we're under grace, we say, well, uh, I've got the Holy Spirit who's written the law in my heart and so I don't need to pay attention to, uh, to all of those laws. That's legalism. Right? If you're to tell people that they can't do anything on the Sabbath, if you're to tell people that, uh, that they shouldn't read certain books that inspire lust in their heart, if you tell people that they shouldn't watch certain movies, all these other things, that's legalism. No, that's law, uh, and that's obedience. So the, the confession tells us the moral law doth forever bind all. 
uh, as well the justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that, not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthens this obligation. Where do we see Jesus strengthen this obligation? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he strengthens a lot of the commandments that they had heard. Uh, he applies it inwardly. You've heard it said that you shall not lust after a woman, you shall not commit adultery. He says, well, actually, if you, uh, if you lust, you commit adultery in your heart. Jesus doesn't say, don't forget about that seventh commandment. It's not important anymore. The gospel is here. The kingdom of God is here. You don't need that stuff. No, he says, uh, whoever teaches these things shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He even connects the, uh, the obedience to the Old Testament law, the moral law, with greatness in the kingdom of heaven, with, with sort of New Testament language there. Uh, this section is explicitly stating uh, the perpetual significance of the moral law. It binds all, whether we are regenerate or unregenerate. That means that in the day of judgment, the unregenerate, uh, the unsaved, will be condemned by the moral law of God. I, I didn't know it, that, it, uh, you know, I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to, uh, to, to take the Lord's name in vain. That wasn't something we believed in my household. doesn't matter. It's binding on all, regenerate as well as unregenerate. Uh, even the believer who has the law written on their heart may not cast aside the law written on the tablets of stone. Why? Well, because the same Holy Spirit who inspired the, uh, the law written on the tablets of stone is the same Holy Spirit who writes the law in our hearts. God does not lie. He does not contradict himself. Right? You, you get sometimes these believers who, well, uh, yes, uh, I had this affair, and yes, I, I left my spouse, uh, but really, I'm so much more spiritually blessed now that I'm with this other person. This is the person I was meant to be with, and that really was God's blessing for me. False. Uh, the law says, thou shalt not. Uh, and we can't, uh, we can't split asunder those things. We can't try to replace a sort of inward law that makes us feel better with our sin uh, with the outward law that condemns that sin. Uh, Romans 13 does the same, tells us, oh, no, no one anything, excuse me, uh, oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul says, you have a duty, you must love. Why? Because love has to do with the law. The law is perpetually binding. Then section six, this is the longest, okay? And this one tells us what use does the law have for us? Uh, it's perpetually binding. The moral commandments are perpetually binding. Uh, but what does it do for us? Uh, how does it help us? How is the law a blessing and not just a curse? So let's pay attention here. Notice that it, uh, it talks in two different ways. First, it will tell us the benefit, the use of the law for all people, whether you're a regenerate or unregenerate. And then it will tell us about the use of the law for the regenerate only. And there's a distinction here. It says, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others. So this is the use of the law to the regenerate and the unregenerate. It's of use to everybody. In that, 
as a rule of life informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly. It discovers also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives. So, as examining themselves thereby by the law, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So, uh, what is the use of the law for the regenerate as well as the unregenerate? Well, it's the law as a mirror. Maybe you've heard of it uh, spoken of that way before. It's the law that shows us our sin, shows us our inability to work righteousness, and shows us our need for Christ. That use, though, cannot save us. It leaves us condemned. It does not leave us justified. Right? So this is the first use of the law, or one use of the law for all people everywhere, that the law stands in condemnation over us and our sin to show us how bad our sin really is. It's God's perfect standard whereby we can, uh, we can judge uh, and, uh, and evaluate our sin. Okay? Then uh, it picks up, it is likewise use to the regenerate. So this is not everybody, but only to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions. In that, it forbids sin. And the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it, in like manner, show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, although not as due them by as a law as a covenant of works, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil because the law encourages the one and deters the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. What is this telling us? Well, for all people, the law is useful to show us our sin. For the regenerate only, the law is useful to actually restrain our sin, to keep us from walking in it. How does that happen? Well, skip ahead to the last section, and we'll sort of look at these in tandem. Uh, number seven, neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. How is the law useful to the regenerate in restraining sin? Well, the regenerate has the Holy Spirit indwelling him or her, has the law of God written on his or her heart, and is enabled by the work of the Spirit actually to walk in these things. The unbeliever does not have the Spirit of God, does not have the ability to actually walk and, uh, and walk in obedience and grow in sanctification. And so when the unbeliever looks at the law, all they see is condemnation. When the believer looks at the law, they see condemnation, and then they see guidance, and guidance by the Holy Spirit to put that to work in the lives of believers. So there's a distinction there. There's also a judicial use of the law, which you may hear sometimes uh, spoken of, which uh, the confession doesn't get into here, uh, but it helps to, uh, to hold back sin in a society uh, because it has threatenings and, uh, and uh, promises and things like that. The, the basic principle that people uh, don't sin because they don't want to be punished. They don't break the law because they don't want uh, condemnation. Rob? Yes, 
that they ought to see condemnation. Um, but, uh, and, and here's, here's a good one. Um, look, at, look back at section 5. <clears throat> Moral law forever binds all justified as well as others to the obedience, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. So, if you think that it's a moral thing, you're an unbeliever, you teach your children, you shouldn't lie. Don't lie. It's bad to lie. It hurts other people. You shouldn't lie. And your kids are, are relatively honest young people. Does that mean that they are keeping the moral law of God? No. Because there's no obedience to God in it. There's, there's no obedience to the authority of the one who gave it. Right? Even in our striving for uh, for honesty, because it, it, it gives you certain advantages in life, it protects other people, it is a good thing in society, it helps everybody to get ahead, there's still this massive gap of heartfelt obedience to the Lord. That's the difference uh, between the law that restrains sin in a society and the law that actually guides the believer in the way of peace, because the Holy Spirit is at work. But you're right, Rob, uh, the unbeliever should see condemnation, uh, but often they don't. The reality is, uh, as Paul points out, that at the end, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed from, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness by men who suppress the truth. And when that final day of judgment comes, there will be no one who thinks that God is unjust for passing judgment on them. They'll realize they have been condemned by his law, they have not kept his law, and that will be revealed to everybody regenerate and unregenerate alike. Questions on the Westminster Confession view of the law before we turn and, and look specifically at Robertson's uh, treatment of this. Teresa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is difficult, isn't it? Interpretation is difficult. And uh, Jeremiah talks about that. Chapter 17. <clears throat> Rather than uh, rehearsing it and butchering it. Verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verse 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, there's an answer to that question in the next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You said interpretation's hard, and so people can justify certain things. Well, we can. In this life, to ourselves, to one another, uh, my wife and I have often uh, remarked that when we really want something, even if it's not a wise decision, we can justify just about anything we need or we think we need, right? We can talk ourselves into, you know, we, we really need that bigger television or we really, whatever it is, we can justify uh, until we turn blue. But that doesn't change the reality of the situation. It may change the way that we think about it, may change the way our deceitful hearts uh, try to fit it into what we actually want. But the Lord says, he's not unclear in interpretation. He's not unclear in what the law requires, uh, what is demanded of us. 
and actually, he has given us a law that in most respects is very clear. We talked about this a while ago, that this idea of the clarity, the perspicuity, which is the worst possible word to describe clarity because that word is not clear at all. The perspicuity of God's word, that not everything is alike plain unto all, uh, but all things uh, which are necessary for salvation are so put down in some place of scripture or another that even the learned and the unlearned by a due use of the means of study can come to a knowledge of those things, right? Everybody, by looking at God's word, can come away with saying there are things that are wrong and there are things that are right. And we may talk about sometimes where that law is or, or where that line is, right? Uh, you know, you, you think about things like Corey Ten Boom in The Hiding Place. Uh, you think about things like Rahab and the spies, and, and we, want to, we want to talk about these, these moral issues as though they are the pattern for most of life. And we could go down that rabbit trail if we want to, but the reality is deception is wrong, right? Truthfulness is right, uh, and, and we know that. And in fact, we know that by the image of God in our hearts, and we can justify a lot of things uh, but Jeremiah tells us at the end of the day, it's the Lord who searches the heart. It's the Lord who tests the mind. And he keeps us, holds us accountable uh, to his perfect standard, which at the end of the day, after all of our self-justification, will be revealed for exactly what it is. Follow-up? Gotcha. Good. Jay. Yep. <clears throat> Well, um, a few things there. You said there's no Holy Spirit there. I would push back. Um, one of the questions that you'll find in your, uh, this is the longest outline. It's page five in your packet. Um, so under the first general section, the second big bullet, the black bullet there, basic question that your pastor gets asked more than you might think. If the saints in the Old Testament weren't saved by keeping the law, how were they saved? Is that different from the way that salvation comes to us? Well, how are we saved? Well, we're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ worked as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration precedes faith. How are Old Testament believers saved? They're saved by looking forward in faith to the Christ who was to come. But they're just as unable to believe as we are apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So is the Holy Spirit indwelling those believers in the Old Testament? Well, he's enabling those believers at least. There is a difference. When Jesus sends the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, Joel prophesies, we'll see it in a couple weeks in our, our sermon, uh, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. There is a more fuller advance and giving of the Holy Spirit upon the church. The Holy Spirit's not absent, right? So there is a righteousness. Abraham was counted righteous 
by faith. Where did he find the faith? Well, the Holy Spirit gave it to him, obviously. It uh, had to have been because he was dead in his sins and trespasses, just like you were dead in your sins and trespasses. So first, a little pushback. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there. Second, uh, to the question of what is that saying, uh, this person is righteous, we always, uh, or, or we often, um, we often use words in an unnuanced way. We have only one bucket in which to put them. So when we see righteousness in the scripture, we think righteousness before God. Theological righteousness, that's the only category we have. The scripture sometimes uses other categories. It uses a comparative righteousness. Think of Noah. We looked at Noah a while ago. Um, think of the story in reverse. Noah became a man of the soil, <laughs> right? Think of the end chapter of Noah's life before we think of the first chapter of Noah's life. Noah was not a blameless man in the sense that he was righteous before God and absolutely sinless. Nobody since the fall has been. Yet the Lord says he is blameless in his generation. It says of, uh, of Job. The Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. It's a comparative righteousness. The Lord is not setting up uh, any of these people, Job or, or Noah, uh, or other people that we would see. Even uh, in, in some of the Psalms, David says, uh, deal with me according to my righteousness, O Lord. Whoa, that's a scary concept, right? Uh, we pray in our prayer of confession, he does not give to us as we deserved. Uh, if God's going to deal with us according to our righteousness, we're sunk. And so is every Old Testament believer. But we need to know that sometimes, just like uh, Robertson makes the point in this chapter, that Paul uses the word law, and he means several different things sometimes, and we need to be really clear on what he means. The Bible sometimes uses the concept of righteous and righteousness in a comparative way of uh, one people against another people, of one person against many people. Uh, and, and that's, I think, just something that we need to be aware of in Scripture. Does that answer the question? Other questions, thoughts on, on just the concept of the law in the Westminster before we uh, completely disregard Robertson for the rest of the class? Yeah, the seed of the first actual sin is planted when the serpent says, has God actually said? Uh, he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, right? God is holding out on you. He can't be trusted. God does not have your best interests in mind. You should take what belongs to you. Take the fruit and eat it. That's the seed of the first sin. It grows up. Uh, as we see in, uh, in James, he talks about uh, temptation uh, giving birth to sin, right? That temptation to disbelieve God grows into the actual taking and eating. Uh, but you're right. Uh, faith is, is this uh, sort of symbol of obedience that when you believe him, you walk in his ways.
So with all that in the background, we have this question in Robertson. Uh, what do New Testament believers have to do with the Old Testament law? Uh, again, this is a very, very long chapter. There's a lot in here. Uh, but if you break it down, you really see that he's not telling us anything we haven't heard already. So the first two sections, don't be deceived by uh, these big, bold headings, if you're reading. Uh, I think, uh, Robertson may disagree with me, I think that there are two introductions to this chapter and one main argument. So if you look at the outline later, I'll, I'll point out what those introductions are. The first one is about a critical analysis. How did the Pentateuch come to us? Did it come by Moses writing the Pentateuch? Or was it delivered through many other people and editors putting it together over a course of many centuries and it shows up only after the exile uh, when people are trying to be really pious all over again? Uh, no, that's the basic argument. Uh, it came to us from Moses. Uh, it's God's word. We can trust it. So that's the first introductory point. The second introductory point um, is uh, he, he summarizes the Mosaic Covenant as the external uh, where is it? the externalized summation of the will of God, the theological significance of uh, the covenant with Moses. He talks about the distinctiveness. This is page 172. Um, the Mosaic covenant manifests its distinctiveness as an externalized summation of the will of God. Good. Uh, so this law stands over us. It stands above us. It demands our obedience. Uh, we owe obedience to the Lord. So those are the two introductory sections. I think the real argument picks up in page 175, and it's in two sections. Uh, he says, uh, well, three sections. He says that the covenant law is related organically to the totality of God's redemptive purposes. And then he says the covenant of law is related progressively to the totality of God's redemptive purposes. Here's where I think that Robertson has not helped himself by using these terms. Because we hear that, it's related organically, it's related progressively. What in the world does he mean by that? We've already studied this. He's told us already that in the covenants there is a unity and there is a diversity. Unity is the organic relation. That this idea of law in God's covenant is not distinct from any of the other administrations of God's covenant. There was law before Moses. There's law after Moses, actually. And so although it is a much bigger section, although it is a much bigger uh, uh, publication of the fullness of God's moral law and, and all these other laws that we've looked at for the people, it's not distinctly different. It's not uh, a completely different species from what we've seen before. Right? So we sometimes look at the law of Moses and think, yeah, this is the one that's really different. The law of promise to Abraham, that's great. The law of grace to, to Adam, that's great. The, the law to Noah, the, the law to David, all those things are, are looking forward. But then the, the Mosaic law comes in and it's, and it's really law heavy. And he's saying, no, it's organically related. It's the same species. There's been law all along. Okay, So that's this unity of the covenants that he wants us to see. And you can get into the weeds with some of his uh, arguments there and you can, you can go through that um, uh, that summary, if that's helpful for you, for you. They do. Um, judicial laws. Well, uh, he points out the fact, and, and this comes in the second section, um, that, that there is a progressive relation as well. So there's unity, it's an organic relationship, and there's diversity, it's a progressive relationship. So he points out one of the progressive developments 
of the Mosaic Law is the nationalization of the people. Up until Moses, it's true. They were not a nation, they were a family, a very, very large family in Egypt, uh, but after that, they were uh, a nation. Now, when you get to the Davidic covenant, we see that there is uh, a judicial element. God is giving laws. This is the progress now from Moses to what comes after it. God is giving laws that have to do with the, uh, the promulgation, uh, or promulgation is the wrong word, uh, the maintenance of the dynasty, in a sense. You'll always have a son to sit on your throne, he says. There was nothing like that in the Mosaic Covenant, right? God chose Joshua after Moses, but what do we do after Joshua? There's nothing there. There's no promise that there will be this, this dynastic line that happens, and so there's a development and a judicial development. And in fact, we see that even further developed in Christ, where it's not just a king who sits on the throne over one kingdom, geographically defined, but the king who sits over his entire kingdom, uh, his people spread throughout all the earth, every tribe and nation and tongue and language, and so it is this expansion of this judicial idea. Yes. So it scales. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm lost, man. <laughs> yeah, I, you lost me. Um, but it scales. It gets bigger. It gets bigger for those of us who aren't engineers. Uh, and so here we've already touched on this second main uh, idea that the, the covenant law is related progressively to the totality of God's redemptive purposes. It brings in elements that were not there before the Mosaic law. Okay? Uh, so it, it, he says that it nationalizes the people. It gives a much more comprehensive view of the law. It is a much greater, uh, it has a much greater humbling ability, right? So when the law is spelled out, we see our sin much more clearly. That's a good thing, he says. It has a greater typological significance. It shows us what righteousness looks like in a more defined way. It points us to the righteous one who was to come. Right? These are things that we have not seen in the covenant with Noah or the covenant with Adam or even the covenant of Abraham. We saw that requirement, that law for Abraham, that he should walk before the Lord and be blameless, but we didn't have this, uh, this explicit mention of what all that blamelessness had to do with and, and what it looked like. So we have this progressive uh, addition here. Uh, so he says the Mosaic Covenant is an advancement beyond all that comes before it. He says it is less than all that comes after it. So we've talked about the permanence of the Davidic covenant. We could talk about the internal nature of the new covenant versus the external nature of the Mosaic covenant. And we see some of these things with the, the law written on our heart. Uh, and that's where he gets into uh, the second group of weeds when he's talking about the glory of Moses' face and the way that it fades. All you have to know is that Paul argues from the New Testament that the Mosaic law was always meant to be eclipsed by the new covenant law. It was not meant to be something that stood parallel, right? There is this, uh, this idea, and it's setting us up for the argument in next chapter, next week, Lord willing, uh, the distinction between covenant theology and um, dispensational theology. Dispensational theology believing that God has parallel tracks of redemption. He's got a track of redemption for the Israelites, that is the keeping of the law, 
That's how they're saved. That's how uh, they come into God's redemptive purposes. And then God has this parallel track for the Gentiles where it's salvation by faith. He's pointing out, no, no, the law was always meant to give way to faith. The fullness of all of these, uh, these typological ideas uh, were, were meant to be, uh, the fullness was meant to come and, and to do away with all of those things. So that is the, the argument of this chapter in a very small nutshell. Uh, the last section that he gives us is that it all consummates in Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the greater lawgiver. He has a greater glory than Moses. He rules as the son over the house that Moses ministered in as a servant. Uh, he's the end of the law for all who believe. He fulfills all righteousness. He says from every perspective, the covenant of law consummates in Jesus Christ. So that's the chapter uh, in uh, a very brief nutshell. We've got 10 minutes. As you perhaps read through already, or as you're thinking about this now, what are your reactions, responses, questions about what we've seen in Robertson so far? Yeah, and so we have, uh, we have this word, uh, what, is, uh, what is righteousness all about? Then we have this man uh, who shows us true righteousness. And then we have the Holy Spirit that the New Testament says is conforming us to the image of Christ. Not just generically, not just the image of God, right? Uh, the image of God rests on, uh, on all people to a degree, uh, even though it's been broken by the fall. And yet the Holy Spirit comes and he conforms us to the image of Christ. Well, well, what is that image? Well, it's the image of the perfect righteous man. Right? He grows us in a personal righteousness. There's, there's a sanctification we can talk about when the Lord declares us sanctified, declares us holy. There's a sanctification that will be perfected at the last day. But there is progressive sanctification as we grow more and more after the image of Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well... How can we tell? How do we judge those things? Well, we can go back to the law and say this person is growing in obedience. We can see those things. Uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Uh, so we, we need to take all those things and we look at ourselves, we look at others with a grain of salt. We don't know the heart as the Lord knows the heart. Uh, but we have these standards by which we can judge uh, and we can see and we can be encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. Any questions on, on Robertson and the argument that he's putting forward or thoughts? I do have some other, more discussion questions, which I'll turn to you in just a moment. Good. All right. Well, let's look at that last page then. Uh, probably only have time for one, so let's pick a good one. Yes. Yes.
and I think until you've experienced it, as you're explaining, you, you, know, you said you, you came to have an appreciation for the law and you found the law to be liberating. It seems counterintuitive, right? Uh, and, and even when you read Paul, uh, those who, uh, who submit to the law become slaves to the law. Well, he's talking about this misunderstanding of the law. He's talking about this attempt to use the law as a way to justify ourselves. But once we realize that we can't justify ourselves by the works of the law, we have to be justified by Christ as a gift, well, then the law, he says in, in Romans, becomes good and righteous and true. Because what does it do? It shows us our sin. I would not know that what it was to covet unless the law told me, thou shalt not covet, so that the law is good and righteous and true. And we can find that these things are uh, a blessing to us because the curse has been removed. Notice that last section in the Westminster. It says these things sweetly comply with the gospel. I love that little section. Why does it sweetly comply? Because the Holy Spirit takes the law and writes it on our hearts and gives us the ability to perform these things. Right? That's what was missing. The first section says that Adam in the garden had ability to perform. Passe non peccare. It was possible for him not to sin. Um, and, uh, and, and we, uh, in our sin from that, have lost that ability. We do not have the ability to obey the Lord. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he rejuvenates, he restores and reinvigorates our souls and gives us that ability to walk in his ways and his laws. I often use a, uh, um, a benediction from Hebrews 13. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Can, can anybody do anything pleasing in the Lord's sight? Well, the believer can. The Lord is pleased to look on his people, to see the holiness that he works into his people by his Holy Spirit. Another, another point there, as you're, you're pointing out, this sort of counterintuitive uh, freedom that the believer finds in the law that the unbeliever does not find in the law. Uh, anybody still have your, uh, your confession open? Look at the chapters that come before and after the chapter on the law of God. This is not unintentional. The chapter before it is on assurance of faith. How can I be assured that I'm actually walking in the Lord? And it talks about turning to the uh, the promises of the gospel and believing them. It also talks about examining our hearts and seeing uh, this progressive sanctification at work. What's that progressive sanctification look like? Next chapter, law of God. Right? Uh, and then, uh, the chapter following, liberty of conscience. Well, if the law is no longer over us to condemn us and to bind us as a covenant of works, then we are not freed from the law, we are freed to keep the law, right? We, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit, we are liberated to do the things, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Uh, I love that you've pointed that out, Landon. Uh, and as you just see the way that the Westminster Divines have put this together, they know what they're doing. Uh, and they know, all right, well, when I, when I work through this concept in my own life, I'm struggling with assurance, what does holiness look like? Well, here's the law. Oh, but that, that law might condemn me. No, 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 you're, you're free in Christ. Uh, and it's this balance as we walk uh, with the Lord to show us holiness and his work in us. Dave had a hand.
I doubt it. I can't explain that, but I, I, can, I can sort of point out, how do we deal with that? How do we recognize it? Uh, well, we recognize it when you, you deal with an unbeliever, um, maybe agnostic, maybe atheistic, uh, who wants to tell you that you should not believe in the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is a terrible uh, megalomaniac. He's a monster. He's morally corrupt. You shouldn't believe in the God of the Bible. By what standard do they judge the God of the Bible to be morally corrupt? What is their moral standard by which they say, well, this is right and this is wrong? If it hasn't come from God or a God, where do they get it? And if they have no standard, then there really is no standard, and you can't tell me that the God of the Bible is corrupt. It's a, it's a circular argument, right? Now, the unbeliever wants to say that the Christian has a circular argument that you believe because you choose to believe. Well, we would say that the unbeliever has a circular argument, argument as well. We all have our presuppositions. We start somewhere. You choose, I will not believe in this God of the Bible, and I will twist anything I can to make it align with that presupposition. Well, we need to be careful of our own presuppositions and the way that we can do that, the way that we're not actually going back to God's truth. But I think you see that very clearly, this idea of, uh, well, I want a moral standard to condemn the moral standards I don't like. Right? Unless... Uh, you know, I, I want a moral standard when it helps me, but not when it's against me. And I think that the way that we explain that is that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Right? We self-justify at all times. There was one more hand. That's a, but you do have to worry about the cops, Jay. You're not <laughs> there you go. Good. Unless your tail lights out. Case, you know. Thank you, officer. All right, folks, uh, we're going to pray, and then uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at this discussion on dispensationalism. Hang in there on that chapter. That might seem like, what's going on here? Uh, here are theological terms that I'm, I'm not used to, arguments that I'm not ready for. Uh, make your way through it. We'll come back, and, and we'll, uh, we'll talk through it a little bit next time. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your work in the hearts of your people. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, which causes your outward law to sweetly comply with the inward law written on our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Conform us more to the image of Christ. Give us wisdom uh, by your word. Give us fellowship with yourself as we come to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name.